I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I'm a historian, author, aggressively fast walker, but lately in a world that promises endless progress, even now in a pandemic, I've realized I just need to be a person. It's hard to give up on the feeling that the life you want is just out of reach. If only you tried. Eat this food, find that relationship, just get the kids graduated or the parents this kind of care. Only then will I feel different, better, whole. But that's not the way this works. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And here's the very fun thing about that. The world loves you better when you are shiny, when you are cheerful, when you still believe that your best life now is right around the corner. I've written multiple books on the history of the idea that you can always fix your life. So I'm going to be the one to say it. There are some things we can change and some things we can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. We can have beauty and meaning, community and love, and we will need each other if we're going to tell the truth. Life is a chronic condition, and there's no cure for being human. We are not disillusioned anymore. Our little darlings, our pet theories about what we deserve and how this might go are gone. They've been swept away not by a breeze, but by gale force winds. And yeah, all right, here we are. I know this sounds very sanctimonious, but a long time ago, someone told me that I would need something very strong to stand on to live here. Like this. Virtues, said my friend, Reverend Dr. Warren Smith. And I believed him, not only because he was wearing a clerical collar, but because he always seemed like he had been built by them. Virtues like love, he was very good at being loving and never nearly as sarcastic as I am. And hope, he seemed to know that hope was something that I had pretty sure that I'd gotten confused with optimism. When I look around at people who know how to stand there, built by something other than a gauzy photo filter and a sign in a living room that reads, live, laugh, love, I realize that I'm searching for people who embody good, strong virtues. Virtues are not just concepts, they're ideas that must be practiced. It's not love if you're not loving. You're not faithful if you don't step out to the unknown. It's awful because it must be done, tried. We can't just imagine it into being. When people and communities can bring them to life, put skin and bones on concepts and ideals, it is wonderful to behold. It allows us to dream. What would it be like if this worked? Can this help me live? Can this take me a little further to the place I want to go? The person I want to become? Today, our guest is one of my favorite writers who wrestles with the embodiment of our deepest hopes to be transformed. She is a dreamboat to read, so I will spare no time in saying I am elated to be talking to Anne Lamont. Anne Lamont is a writer and speaker who doesn't sugarcoat a single terrible thing. Her beautiful books like Traveling Mercies, Plan B, Bird by Bird, which should be required reading for any writer, and her latest, 
dusk, night, dawn are filled with honesty, disappointment, and hope. Her essays about alcoholism, motherhood, and Jesus will leave you in a fit of tears or laughter or both at the same time and remind you that sarcasm is also a spiritual gift. Anne, thank you so much for being with me. I thought my life was complete before this, but apparently it's happening right now. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. I love you. And I'm so, so glad to be with you. And I loved your book. I could be reviewing you. But that's not the concept. (laughs) I, I think, um, I think it might be fun where we could just start with reality because every other premise seems absurd. As we speak, we are living through a version of the apocalypse. And your book begins there. You, Brooke, no nonsense about this subject. In case anyone feels confused about this, what are the things we genuinely have to fear? Well, um, I guess death. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't really care that much about my own death because as a believer, I'm, I sort of think of it as a really dramatic change of address, but the only thing I really fear is the death of the people I love most. You know, there's like three or four people that um, I can't imagine living without. And uh, But my best friend's son just died. He was 23. And I'm a little bit mad at God. I'm not quite speaking to God about this yet, but the grace that that house was filled with and the grace of his passing was so incredible. And yet she lost her son, you know, her little child. And so she's been sober as long as I have 34 years. And she said to her sponsor, uh, I'm just terrified. And the, and the sponsor said, what are you afraid of? She said, I'm afraid I can't do this. And the sponsor said, you're doing it. Yeah. That really helped me that even up to that last breath and until the next day, when the day of his death, when we bathed him together, and anointed him, she was doing it. And, you know, COVID has been so heartbreaking, not because of what the impact on me, and I'm older too. I know I'm going to be 67 next month. And so I got my shot and I get another shot next week. But um, in the world, what people, in the rest of the world, what people are living through, who are already living through grinding poverty and and the, and genocide you know and then on top of it this disease it's terrifying and yet without sugarcoating anything the response has broken my heart open in the good way yeah like carly simon said there's more room in a broken heart and to watch people take care of the uyghurs right now and and to take care of the the poverty stricken all over america is medicine yeah it's it's like Rumi said that through love all pain will turn to medicine it doesn't say most pain or some of the pain it says all pain mm-hmm. so I'm watching that around me and um it brings me to tears I'm sure it brings me to tears too yeah there's an awe seeing like all the ragged edges and then seeing everybody drop close to it with love it does absolutely stagger me every time I'm near to it yeah. And I'm always shaking people down for money for one cause <laughs> or another, because for some weird reason, I'm good at it. And people I've never met will send me like a thousand dollars. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it's real money. A hundred dollars is a lot. I think you feel it. 
the people I've never met will send me a thousand dollars. And that's what love looks like sometimes. Yeah, it does. I'm a lot older than you are. But when I was coming up in the 50s and then early 60s, people talked about sacrifice because they just come through the war. My parents' uh, generation had My mother's from Liverpool, so she'd been there. My father was in the Navy and, and uh, they knew from sacrifice, you know. Yes, that's right. And my parents were atheists, so I wasn't allowed to think about um, God or Jesus's sacrificial love. But my grandparents were Christian missionaries, so I had this sneaky little alcove I could go to and, and hear about it. And when people sacrifice, whether it's their money or their time to get out of themselves, yeah, for other people, oh boy, that fills me right up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you say that, I picture my 94-year-old grandpa, who was the grouchiest man I have ever loved, just so angrily folding everybody's wheelchair into the back of his tercel in his trailer park <laughs> to take everyone else to their appointments. And uh, he didn't have to have a great attitude about it. No, he take, just went, but it was service, service, service. You take the action and the insight follows, which is that in giving and in doing service and in crankily putting everybody's wheelchairs for, in the back of your trunk, you are the one who is filled. You are the one who is uplifted. Like it's, we think we're so hungry for what we're not getting, right? Yeah. You know this, you think that if certain things happen for you, then you will feel, it's like the FDA giving you the stamp of approval and yeah. it's an inside job. It's really in helping other writers that, that you are most blessed and most um, happy that you're one of them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a weird math. Yeah. Just give it away and then me and then we're like no 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 no. It fills up from the bottom. Yeah. You think a lot about carving out a different relationship with fear. In one of your essays, you give fear a very special name. She's a governess and her name is Dread. Yeah. How does Dread want us to live? Well, I wrote that my governess when I was growing up was dread and the dread wanted me to stay small you know and the dread wanted me to do more that helped the family feel good about itself and it wanted me to need less and it wanted me to agree because I grew up around alcoholism and black belt liver puddlian codependence it wanted me to agree not to see what was going on because it made the grown-ups feel bad about how they were living and the dread wanted me to just really not have any needs and to dance as fast as I could and to help everybody feel very, very good about um, the choices they were making and to take the leftovers. So for me, there's a great acronym in the recovery movement. You know, usually you hear the acronym for fear is forget everything's all right or F everything and run. Or whatever. But the acronym I love is the frantic effort to appear recovered. And the fear that comes from, from having to pretend you're fine. Oh, yeah. oh, no, I'm actually not worried about that. Oh, no, I just trust God. Not, God never gives you more than you ever. <laughs> Nothing, ever, you know, everything happens for a reason. It's like, really? Did God stop by this morning and, and leave you a post-it? That, uh, <laughs> the, the frantic effort to appear recovered is the source of most of my fear is my belief that I have to pretend to be somebody other than I am. But I don't want to be how I am because how I am is scared or sad or, or, or sad or tired or angry, worried that my broken heart will kill me or mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, 
I love the way you described exhaustion too, as being like trying to tuck an octopus into bed at night where there's just all these limbs keep popping out. <laughs> like you're just like, how do I get this to lie down? Well, I was raised in a family where you didn't do any of those four things that you just said, fear, grief, hmm. um, or the anger for a girl. Oh my God. Before the women's movement, it was, it was, you were exiled. It was terrifying. And I forgot what the fourth was, but, you know, you start trying to pretend you don't have any of those. And then another octopus arm pops out. And this time it's like rage or this time it's um, yeah. uh, extreme depression or or this passionate desire to write a memoir, which actually no one in your family is going to be glad to hear. <laughs> and these arms, as long as you're pretending not to be who you are, the arms are going to just keep popping out of that bed <laughs> it sounds it sounds like we need to increase our capacity i don't know maybe our language too just to to feel multiple things at the same time i struck when i was reading about your friend terry who's a greeter at your church that she seems very good at at having multiple feelings at the same time what does terry do can i have it oh this will not surprise you Terry had unsurvivable kind of oral cancer uh-huh. 25 years ago, where 2% of people survive it. Um, disfiguring because they have to take out a lot of your jaw. They take out your tongue, part of your tongue, half your tongue, and your jaw and jaw. And they kind of make you a new jaw from like body parts that you're not that crazy about anyway, like your slides. <laughs> so Terry's a writer. We ha- uh, I have a tiny failing little church that you're all invited to. It's called St. Andrew Presbyterian in Marin City. Services at 11 California time. And she was the greeter that day. And she's got a very crooked smile. They just cut away so much of it. She was in a really, really sad mood. She was just sad about it all. She was sad. Oh, she said, I am sick of being a good sport. She's 70. And she said, I have been being a good sport for 65 years. I was a good sport through it all. And I am sick of it. Her grandchild has stuff going on who she adores, who's been in my Sunday school class. And uh, she said about the passage of time that she was a baby and now she's driving. Oh, my God, what a catastrophe that is. And so she said, tell me a story of uplift, you know, and I was actually teaching my kid, my Sunday school kids, where usually there's usually three of them in there. There's like a six and a seven year old and two 11 year olds or 12 year olds maybe a uh, like an acne prone 16 year old and one six year old and it's two people and I've got to do the same lesson for both. So I was telling her about Elijah, you know, and how Elijah gets run out of town by Ahab and, and Jezebel. And he's just done. He is so sick and tired. He lies down. He wants to die. And you know what I love is the angel, one of these unemployed angels that surround us who are always wishing somebody would call on them to give them peace of mind. And the angel says, I really think you need to eat, (laughs) which is Jesus' message most of the time to disciples. It's like, you're all driving me crazy. Go down to the beach and eat. We'll talk later. You know, there'll be someone will bring some fish, eat. I'll be back three, four hours. So anyway, so the angel says, Elijah. And so he eats his hearth cake, right? And then he gets a message. And in recovery, you call the 12-step message, which is that having gotten renewed, renewal, the Good Friday that turns into the Easter world, they yeah. go spread the word. And what my kids love so much is that the miracle for him comes. If you remember, he gets a best friend. 
Elisha, and they are inseparable down when they go back down into the valley and they are inseparable and they're best friends. And they're like you and your very, very best girlfriend or me and my best friend whose son just died. We are inseparable. And if we are together, we are home. If we are together, we are experiencing the kingdom. Yeah. And so Elisha and Elisha's with him even um, to the last second when Elijah disappears in a puff, like like our puff here. So I shared that. Oh, but it also it's the first and maybe last time in the Bible that we hear about God's butt, <laughs> because up on the mountain also you're not supposed to see God's butt, and so you're supposed to see God's face. And so with uh, Moses, I believe. He says, I'm going to, you can look at, you can't look at my face. So I'm going to walk past and then you can look at my backside, I believe, the theological term here. <laughs> and, um, and that cheered my friend up, Terry, because she started laughing again, you know. And my yeah. graduate friend said they think God's butt is like, um, in Thelma, like Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise. <laughs> The horrible thing would be if it was like like granddaddy's butt, you know, which because, but so at any rate, I always write that laughter is carbonated holiness. And, and so Terry and I stood there at the door laughing and we got our mojo back. <laughs> right. There, there just, yeah, there is a feeling at one point, like I'm tired of being a good sport is such a, is such a perfect distillation of that. And yet the. The need to just like, because what's after that, right? It's it's being at home and other people. It's delight. It's feeling the love and absurdity. Like it's what's real, and it's being in truth. You know, it's like yeah. I'm not. I'm done faking it. I I don't. You know, I I don't. I've been faking it my whole life. You know, half of the time, and I'm just done. I don't know how much time I have, but I'm not going to fake it anymore. Oh, that's so good. You don't want to be around me. You know, like people on Twitter are always either attacking me for my Christianity or for my left-wing politics, my anti-Trumpism. And I always write to them, I think you might be more comfortable somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Me to fake it and to have, you know, a bunch of happy Christian bumper stickers on my car. I think they might be more comfortable somewhere else. That's where all of my mental problems spring from is when I won't admit I feel defeated. I feel angry. I'm defeated. I hate everything. If I call Janine, I say, I hate everything and all of life, except for the kitty. She'll say, oh, I'm so glad you called, you know, and his son was like in, in hospice. And I'd say, someone stay with him and we'll go sh- shop and overeat. And she'll be like, thank you, thank you. And it's like, God has reached down and touched her because yeah. she gets to be real. She gets to do real. She gets to be angry. She gets to hate it all. She gets to be with me. (laughs) Kingdom. (laughs) Just friendship and love. The way you talk about your friends, I don't, I don't, I, it's the, it's the first language I've, I've read that just helped me touch down on just how much my, my friends have been the, the most um, beautiful source of intimacy and love and absurdity and, and like the way they carry the story the whole story uh you know they they know the things that i um that were wrong that i have joyfully done <laughs> the things that were done to me the um they usually know if i if i should maybe sp- spend more time um 
before just like running back to things that I think are a great idea. Having them tell the whole story and then reflect back to me the truth has been something I could never do for myself. And I just, I always wondered like, is, is it okay just to be built like from the outside in that way? Because I don't, I don't know how to tell the truth unless other people are telling it to me. Janine and I would call each other. I mean, we talk every day and we, I just say, I just hate Ellen. I think Ellen's existence is, is the one reason it's so hard for me to go on. And she'd say, me too. Christians and it's okay for us to have a problem with somebody who's always spouting this happy BS. Like I I believe it was Ellen that told Janine that the reason her son wasn't healing was because her faith wasn't strong enough. She began to do a laying on of the hands from a more deeply faithful place. The son would begin to heal. And I go, I hate her too. Oh, me too. (laughs) It also makes you hate Ellen less. The other thing is like the out, I just don't believe particularly in the outsides, but there they are, you know, <laughs> there they are. And, uh, and one of the ways to take care of our inside and the soul, our center, our core, our heart cave is through the skin, you know, through lotion on these flabby thighs and through, yeah. um, through putting on lipstick when we feel really, really down and putting on a really pretty shirt and and so the the body is really a, a way to do um unconditional love with ourselves mm-hmm. my main lesson with my sunday school kids is called loved and chosen we used to have like a bigger class like five or six people and they're all ages and i'd say you know what i'll do it with you i'd say kate you know what you are loved and chosen isn't that wild mm-hmm. you in your current mood, possibly being a little cranky and also teary, and maybe a bit of a mess, or love outside of your comfort zones. You're chosen, you're a chosen child. And I'm going to say, is there anyone here wearing a Pokemon t-shirt? You know how little kids are. They, they, they love around. it. I go, oh, you know what? You are loved and chosen. Oh, and and come just sit with me right now. And um, then I'll say, are any of the girls here wearing their dark hair pulled back in a dark gray T-shirt? And then you would raise your hands and you'd flag me down because it's all try. I go, Kate, you know what? You are loved and chosen. Oh, I love it. And I say, can you believe it as is? Oh, so somebody once made me an embroidery at one of my readings and maybe that said love the chosen. We have that at my front door because, you know, it's the most radical thing you can ever decide to believe and live by. Yeah. As is. Mm. As is. And I always tell my children that they're safe, too, in our love because the world the world is filling them with dread that they won't do well enough, that they're only B students, you know, or that they're the wrong, definitely the wrong race, the wrong color. They they aren't sure who they love yet, but probably they will be wrong. <laughs> and, and I just tell them, you are safe. When you come here with us and you let us feed you, give you juice boxes and sticks <laughs> and you trust us to draw from your insides um you are safe mm-hmm. you know that's my ministry is you are loved and chosen and safe in love <sighs> but the hardest work we do here is the self-love the radical self-love mm-hmm. 
That kind of love is transformational. Totally. Molecularly transformational. It changes molecularly. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I loved you had this great account of how we can try to ward off that kind of love, resist that kind of love by sort of being our own bodyguards. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I was actually my friend Duncan Trussell said that because that because it can be understood two ways. Um, He said, when you first meet me, you're meeting my bodyguard. You're meeting the person who's paid to keep you from knowing me, affecting me or hurting me in any way. But, you know, I live by that beautiful line of Blake's of William Blake's that we are here to learn to endure the beams of love. We're here to learn to endure. Oh, it's so awful. The beams of love. And yeah. so if your bodyguard's there, it's so great to keep people from hurting you any further. But it has to do with this discernment that some people are really able to honor you and take care of you in a sanctified way. And you can let them in. And it's scary. Yeah. Like I've done, when I was drinking, I got sober at 32, but I did such horrible, horrible things uh, to other women and involving their men or boyfriends and to other people. And to believe that I can be loved, as loved as your little boy, having all done, is the crazy face and grace. Yeah. Right. Like having a that I am loved as much as the new baby at church. Yeah. Yeah. Hasn't figured out anything bad to do yet. And me with my terrible history. Um, so that's the mystery of grace. But so yeah. also like before a lot of this psychological and spiritual healing, I was really addicted to people pleasing. You know, I I, I kind of had a system. Um, where everybody had to love me or I couldn't have any peace of mind. I couldn't hardly breathe if one person, and I am in the wrong business. You know, <laughs> I'm a writer I'm, and I'm a left-wing Christian and I'm, lots of people don't love me and, um, or like me or, you know, especially in the South. <laughs> when people think stuff or say stuff about me and my beliefs, I say to them, you get to think that. Mm. You get to do that. And then I think, what would Jesus do? Jesus would say, hey, can I get you a glass of water? <laughs> so I get you a glass of water, you know, and and there's a little bit of communion there. Even better, I share my M&Ms with them. We have yeah. And then there's a little bit of grace. Yeah. A little bit of uh, water wing energy happening between us, for both of us. It sounds like love is really intimately connected with forgiveness, like forgiveness for ourselves, forgiveness for other people. It seems horrible, uh, forgiveness in its in its actual outworking. And I, you, you describe it like a kind of um, a maturity. I was picturing, I don't know, I, I do think forgiveness seems like kind of a mystery, right? Like, how do you know, how do you know when you've done it? How do you know when you have it? What if it just goes away in a second? What if we only have a second of it for ourselves and then we're right back to Yeah. The way you describe it it sounds like it's um it's a it's a it's a it's a thing that can grow and take root and have like sweeter fruit. I guess I just I'm picturing a tree. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's right. And um 
in my experience, again, the willingness to do anything that involves the softening of my heart involves causing myself a great deal of pain by not being available for the spiritual softening of um, of my my cold heart there. I've written so much about forgiveness because, you know, I think earth is forgiveness school and that's what we're here to do, but it begins with the worst, most disappointing person of all, which is ourselves. Yeah. And, but my main problem, all of my problems are mental, but my main problem is this lack of forgiveness usually towards myself Mm. and then radiating out because I think that forgiveness means that I'm going to have to have lunch with them (laughs) (laughs) or that they're going to get to come back to the holiday dinners and one or two of them have and that's a miracle that's a miracle that's transformation Uh, and, and that you know grace meets us exactly where we are and it doesn't leave us where it found us and it means to me if I will tell the truth and say I hate her and I don't want anything good to ever happen for her again. I want her to be killed by rats and then I'll rest easy. Um, if I tell the truth, I think God goes, yay, and raise her fists and victory. goes, thank you. Finally, that's the first honest thing I've heard you say this week. And that's what prayer is. And- I love that so much. <laughs> I don't want to say this in the most annoying way. How's that for a disclaimer? But um, I gave up picturing getting older because I I needed to for a minute. Mm-hmm. And I am I am very grateful to be 40. You've written really beautifully about the virtues of the ages that we've seen. I just wondered maybe if we could talk for a minute about how different decades might give us some different gifts. 30s were so hard because... You're supposed to be, and I'm using, I would use air quotes, but you're supposed to have it together. Yeah. And you're supposed to be a grown up and you're supposed to have found your niche as if such a thing exists. Death is the niche, you know? Right. <laughs> and, um, and I had so much more, I had a lot of shame in my 30s. And um, because you also, you, you know, you compare your insides to everybody else's outsides. And other people might be seeming happily married and they're having three kids in Montessori and they've kept their weight down. And, um, <laughs> but you know, shame, I'll tell you a great acronym is should have already mastered everything. Right? <laughs> and that plagued me in my thirties that, um, that I just felt like such a grave disappointment. And, and, uh, and then when I hit 40, this is 27 years ago, I realized how low I'd been flying in the airplane all of these years because I was carrying around all this, all these carry-on bags of other people's and, and, and bags of my own, stuff that I had either done and felt bad about, stuff I hadn't done that I felt bad about not having done. You know, you absolutely cannot win. Yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if the governess is still, is, is still dread. And but little by little, because uh, the women's movement happened 25 years before that, I turned 40 and and I've been sober for eight years by then. I had a little boy, had a five year old and, you know, I've been a single mother and I kind of pulled off that. I had no money. And that was kind of like, well, you know, you look uh, you must look at how you've survived and go, I don't have a clue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Things happened. 
Apparently I was there. <laughs> Thank you. Not like poke around in it. But, um, and I started as intentionally throwing stuff out of the airplane because I didn't want to keep flying so low. And I did sacraments, like filling up a backpack with rocks from the garden and going to the ocean and chucking them off the side of the cliff and saying, here, you know, yeah. I carried my father's shame. And my, fa- my, my father was like a Kennedy, gorgeous, handsome. He did a lot of things that men did to women. And, and he, he abandoned us in a, in a way. He was unfaithful. Ugh. I carried my mother's self-loathing and her hatred. And I threw it off because I said, here, here. Yeah. And you know something sacramental I did? I called. You're going to laugh at this. It's, a, it's going to seem superficial, but it's like putting lotion on your thighs to tend to your soul. I called the friends of the San Francisco Public Library and I said, come to my driveway on Saturday. I have about 500 books you can have. And they were books that I carried because I wanted people to think that I'm I'm not educated at all. And, you know, I, I'm a college dropout and whatnot. I carried around certain books so people would see them on my shelves. And think that I was going to about to reread Plato, again. <laughs> yes. you know, Noam Chomsky. I read on that probably Sunday, and um, and I gave away all the books that had served their purpose, but that I wasn't going to read again. And then I kept around because I was I had this persona, right? Yeah. And all these books that people had given me that I didn't want, right? That they'd given it to me, and it was a blessing. And I put them on my shelves. And you know what? Maybe someone else would enjoy them. And I got rid of about two thirds of my library and I did anything I could think of that would lighten the spaceship of me, of Annie, you know, the stuff that no longer served me that I had around. So other people would think that it meant A, B or C, that um, people, other people had given me and I was worried that they might come by my house sometime and wonder where it was, you know. They were never going to come by my house and look for their fucking book. <laughs> and then my 50s, I got serious and I pushed back my sleep and I buckled up and I said, watch out because I've arrived. <laughs> Finishing your book, I just thought, um, oh, is this where we get to go? That that place seems great. It really does. It seems... um seems like you get to still be irritated by people who don't change and transformed by beautiful wonders and endlessly delighted by like the transcendence just keeps interrupting. You know, I, my uh, pastor um, has this certain uh, old pastor had a sermon about how you could trap um, bees at the bottom of mason jars with a little honey and no lid on because they don't look up. They just kind of walk along, bumping into the glass walls, muttering and bitter. And all they have to do is look up. Yeah. Away and to freedom and to beauty, to the sky and to the nectar, to the flowers. And so one of my battle cries is, you know, get outside, look up. Yeah. Put lotion on your thighs and get yourself a glass of water and step outside and look up. You're not going to go, oh, this is a medium new moon. I mean, you could do better, God. If you did, you really even try? Yeah. Um, <laughs> for Valentine's Day, um, my mom got us all these little tank tops uh, that had the thing that I had said when I was very little, which was I was just just a tender-hearted little kid, and I was constantly imploring us to uh, love our 
love our others. And um, someone, uh, someone in our community saw that and she said, you know, my, my, my kid used to say that, but she would say, um, when, when we, I just needed to be close, when I hear you saying like, when I needed to be loved and, and safe and chosen, mm-hmm. I would, she would look over at me and she would say, um, let's be each other's. And I, it's just, you have this attitude toward not just like the good things, like, like grace and love and, and, but the hard things, forgiveness and also shame and fear. And just let's, you want to draw it all up close and let's be, let's be each other's for a second with it. Yeah. I love that. I just wrote down, probably steal it. (laughs) (laughs) And truly you make me believe that the porousness, that the openness, that the curiosity, that the transcendence, that it will, that it will be worth it in the end. Thank you for inspiring the kind of um, joy that makes, that makes me want to not fly low with, with, with shame and other things that hold us down. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Anne. This was a spectacular intervention. Able to send your stuff to my best friend who's run away from home and while she mourns, while she mourns and heals, you know, all truth is paradox and she's in deep mourning and she's in deep healing. And I said, you know what? You got to know this, Kate Bauer. Oh, thank you. That's... And I to her, and her life is different because of you asking me to be on your show. Oh, my. That conversation is going to require that I change my mind about what to do with a world that is full of things to fear. People we won't please, kids who die, parents who don't change, the onslaught of disease and apocalypse and environmental destruction, and so on and so on and so on forever. What do we do now? I think Anne would say that's not the only question here. The other question might be, who do we need to become now that this is the world we have and this is the people we are? Holy, imperfect, sloppy, joyful, angry, irritated, tired, or maybe just hungry, loved, and chosen. So let's start there. Let's be chothers with all of our frayed edges, with the things we admit only to our best friends, with the people who are hard to love, impossible to forgive, beginning with ourselves, with the shame, with the self-loathing, and fear that we're not enough, with the hope we try to hold on to, but sometimes lose sight of. Maybe I'll just start with a glass of water. Would you like one too? We are in the season of Lent, the time in the church calendar that challenges us all to turn ourselves toward the truth that the world is both terrible and beautiful. And somehow, God meets us there. I've been posting a video every morning on Instagram and Facebook, as well as sending out daily email reflections to help orient our day. So if that's your thing and you want to join along, visit katebowler.com slash Lent to sign up for free.
Today's episode was made possible by our lovely partners, the Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, and Duke Divinity School, who support our Faith in Media project. We are so grateful for their generosity and investment in what we do. And of course, my team, who I am completely obsessed with, Jessica Ritchie, our executive producer, Harriet Putman, our associate producer, Keith Weston, our sound designer, and the rest of the Everything Happens crew who make this project so much fun. Dan Wells, AJ Walton, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, Lana Stewart, Kelly Dunlap, Aaron Lane, Jeb, and Sammy, thank you. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>